friends. You know, I want more men to, you know, go to therapy and talk about these things and unpack, you know, this shit and find honesty and compassion in the face of it all, you know. Hey everyone, welcome to Ben Better, How About You? I'm your host, Katie Nara, and I've suffered from depression nearly my entire life. It sucks. This is a podcast that focuses on mental health broken down in a relatable way and told through personal experiences. P.S. I'm not a doctor, but each week my guests and I will cover everything from recognizing symptoms of anxiety and depression to providing accessible tips, tools, and resources that support mental wellness. So get your weekly prescription with me. Welcome back to another episode of Ben Better. How about you? I'm your host, Katie Nara. And today we have Timothy Goodman joining us. Hi. Hello, Katie. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Timothy is a designer, illustrator, muralist, and author. And grandma calls him an artist. Is that right? <laughs> that is right. Grandma forever. I love that. What do you like to recall? I mean, you do so many things. When I was... I was going to say artist. And then I said, no, I love that grandma calls you the artist. Well, that kind of came from, so I come from a graphic design background. You know, I went to school here in New York City at SVA mm-hmm. for graphic design. My first, you know, I, I started my career as a book jacket designer. Then I worked mm-hmm. at a branding firm. And then I moved to, to the Bay Area to work for Apple as an art director. All this happened within the first three or four years after graduating college. And then that that was the last job I ever had. I've been working for myself for uh, 10, 11 years. And, and in the beginning, I was always, you know, I was doing a lot of murals. I was doing, so I started, you know, I was doing these social experiments that I've done. I was doing, but I still was always calling myself a designer. Okay. You know, or mm-hmm. an illustrator then I'd be called. And it's like, my grandma would always call me an artist because to my grandma, who doesn't, who didn't know all the nuances of like, <laughs> whatever thing from the field or like, you know, and there was like this weird, like presumption of like, I didn't want to be perceived. I think sometimes people come from like a graphic design background or something or a different, but like they start calling themselves an artist. People think they're like really pretentious or something. And, but, but they realized like, and that's where a lot of my work shifted too, is like realizing that what I'm creating is for people. And at the end of the day, they don't like, it doesn't matter. I'm an artist to my grandma, I'm an artist and and I'm an artist to myself. So I'm an artist, you know what I mean? Right. And I'm a writer and I'm a muralist and I'm an illustrator and I'm this, but I'm an artist, you know what I mean? Right. So well, that's what I I had like, and today we have artist Timothy Gooman joining us. But then I thought like that's such a great title that then because I think so many times as artists, we second guess ourselves, like, can I call myself that? Why can't I take ownership of that? And I knew yeah. I knew you had last the last job when you weren't on your own was at Apple. You were yeah. the, did you say the creative director? No, 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 no. Well, first no, of all, of your firm, members. not like of the Apple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I worked at Apple. I worked for Apple and I was yes. an art director. Yeah. You yeah. were the art, an art director at in Apple. In one of the, yeah, in one of the. Right. Well, no, I think because you're very humble and in other interviews I've seen, you're like, well, I worked at Apple before this. And someone could think like, oh, he worked at the Apple store. You know what I mean? Because you. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Or no, yeah. like you were an art director in the Bay Area at Apple. And yeah. for those people that don't know what S- SVA is, what is SVA? SVA is the School of Visual Arts. It was fun, though. I mean, it was a credible school for someone like me who was focused, who, and they had, there's so many working professionals there. 
you know, and I always tell young people like starting on the creative world, it's like find, it's not about where you work. I think in the beginning, it's about who you work for, you know, like find mentors, find people who really have your best interests at heart, who will help guide you, you know, professionally and personally, um, because that is the shit that matters when you're that young, you know, and you're starting out, you know? So you mean for a younger artist, maybe listening, it's better to find someone that believes in you and really can mm-hmm. be, see you kind of throughout the beginning of your career than work at some great company. Listen, just, I think so. I think, if, yeah, if, no, I think that's good if about finding pe- mentors and people like that you really can work for who are going to encourage your development, you know? Mm-hmm and encourage your and really support you to, through that you know and give you the space to to do that you know and i think that's invaluable at that age you know starting out could you always draw though like i feel like people that are as good as you are artistically like you just had a natural gift for graffiti and drawing i mean i was always kind of like when i was a kid i was drawing my my grandmother was a visual artist so i was always kind of around it no i wasn't always drawing this way it wasn't until really like after i graduated college that i kind of stumbled into it but it was always about ideas for me it was like you know how to tell a story how to connect to another person through the art and it was just these ideas and then whatever form that took so be it yeah um, but it just happened that i did this mural for the ace hotel while I had that job at Apple in 2010, um, that I did my first mural and I locked myself in this hotel room. And I just, I have never felt so stimulated in my life creatively at that point. Like, yeah, no distractions. That's great, no right? Distractions, yeah. yeah. There's this moment, like mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, that all kind of like connected. And I was like, whoa, like, how do I make this feeling of doing this mural? Cause I felt like I really did something that I did, mm-hmm. like I hadn't seen. I was like, how do I make this mural? Like this feeling that I have doing this mural, how do I make, how do I find this feeling for the rest of my life? And mm-hmm. so that's kind of wow. where, and so then it was, you know, about the hustle and like really promoting, you know, all that kind of stuff. And did you plan when you said, okay, I'm going to go in this hotel room. Like, did you plan this? I need this for no distractions or was it just happened to be? No, no. Well, they had, they, they had different artists doing different murals in different rooms. So they gave me the room for like two to three days. Oh, so it was like that <laughs> exercise that made you realize, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that's um, awesome. Yeah. And so, but to me at that point, I just kind of stumbled on the paint marker. It was just more about the idea. What, what this mural was, was all these drawings of like, things that um, I, it was in a New York city hotel room. So I was thinking about what would the common tourist was saying in this room? I was like, Oh, I'm going to draw these like picture frames of all these drawing of these things that would be passed to this common tourist, like a great place to get a burger or a great place to go see a music, like a show. And so it was like this, this editorial, which is what all my work has become. It's yeah. very editorially driven. You know what I mean? Like my book cover, this piece behind me, it's all things about Paris, all these places you can go. Like, there's always like, you know, an idea behind it. And that really like, so at that time it was just like, Oh, how do I do this the quickest way possible? And I was like, Oh, there's these things called paint markers. I've never done them. Like, let me try it. Like, you know? And so I just kind of like, and that is born from my own behavior of being impatient. 
So sometimes you got to like, listen to your own, like they can encourage like how you might make art. The fact that I want to get something done quick because I want to go home and watch the Knicks or something (laughs) is like part of like what drove my creative behavior. So I was like, oh, a paint marker. Yeah. I can do You're like, fast. I'm not doing oil paintings. Yeah. That are like, I am not trying to labor over something like that's right. not what I want to do. And so you're also all about, I feel like you want to communicate with the person that's, that's, that's taking it in the viewer. Yeah. Right. I feel like you, or some people fun. don't. Yeah. But some people just don't even care or it's not even on their radar. Not that that's bad, but I think that's why your art has really blown up and registers with so many people, especially on social, because it is so visceral and the viewer like, you get sort of thrown in this, you know, Alice in Wonderland, right? Like you really see all these things that you have, that people have a reaction to. And I mean, we really need that in this day and age. So it's so interesting that you started that so long ago, even. Yeah. Yeah. But I still have a full-time job at that point. So it took me a little, another year to have the courage to kind of quit my job and follow through my conviction and move back to New York after being there for like 12 or 14 months and work for myself. And so you've said it a few times, but what was the aha moment of, I need to leave here. I always wanted to work for myself. Okay. And I needed, like, I think I just, at that point taking that job, I wasn't ready. Um, But so I think it was a blessing and a curse because on one hand I didn't, connect to San Francisco or the Bay Area at all. I, I don't either. I don't yeah. get there's like, like no busy. vibe there. There's like no vibe. <laughs> yeah. I don't get it. It's very it was very hard for me. Yeah. Especially like at soul, that point. It's like soulless. Sorry, San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> you said it not me. Yeah. But I I just was really struggling, especially at that point in my career. I was still like fresh out of school. I wanted like I was coming from New York and like right. you know we are connecting creatively and like going to events and all these things. And I felt like it just was a, a lot very sleepy for me at that moment. So there was that. Shout out to San Francisco because I made some amazing friends at that point. I do background. not. San Francisco, <laughs> I'm falling asleep thinking of you. <laughs> <laughs> and incredible food. Um <laughs> Apple was just a very corporate gig you know it was like very by the book very played by the rules and i was coming from a branding firm working for a guy named brian collins where we didn't do that and then and also i was encouraged to do freelance all the time i I was doing all these editorial illustrations you know i was hustling i was doing you know i just did that mural and they loved it there wasn't any kind of like animosity about it there wasn't anything that kind of like I, yeah. There, so when I was at Apple, it was, there just people didn't do that. You didn't, yeah. you didn't do that. And you really were supposed to go to work and be about the work there. And, but it was a very like laborsome kind of work, which mm-hmm. it was crazy. It was wild. Like to be, to, to poke sure. my head under the roof there, yeah. you know, to be like, be on seeker projects where you had to go through two rooms where you badged in and out and you couldn't even tell your best friend what you were working on kind of a shit like thing like that. So it was wild. And I, I, you know, I don't take any of them for granted. It was a beautiful experience in a lot of ways, but it was really creatively. I wasn't really feeling like I could flex my muscles and I didn't feel so, but at the same time, it was a very nine to five job. So I had a lot of extra time. So I would go home every night and I would work on my freelance stuff. 
I would get, I was doing a lot of editorial illustrations for like the New York times or Time magazine, whatever, or I was doing like working on like trying to get more mural jobs. And so I was spending all this free time constantly hustling nights and weekends. So in this weird way, being there for a year and kind of really feeling just kind of struggling with my own identity at a place like this, it allowed me to, at that time, it allowed me to do so much other stuff. So by the time I was done with it, I realized, oh, I could pay my rent with the freelance work I was making at the Mm, time. Yes. So it gave me courage to finally quit and, and move back to New York and work for myself thinking, well, if I can pay for my rent and my food for the month with just the freelance I'm working. So I, if I really go for this, I can, I think I can make this happen. I don't know what's going to happen from here, but I felt, you know, I felt inspired to do that. So you know, for that, I'm thankful for the whole experience. Yeah, that's awesome. For me at the time, I was young and I wanted that, you know, I wanted to figure out all that stuff and I wanted to work late and I wanted to spin kind of excessively on like all the different creative ways I could do something. And like, you know, and because of that, you know, at the time, and I was fine with it, like relationships and friendships and things came by the wayside because it was all about my career and my work. Only later, years later, did I connect the dots through therapy and like realize why, you know, I felt so kind of like emotionally bankrupt inside because of the years I was just constantly grinding in that way and why I felt like I didn't have more meaning in my life or why I felt like, you know, I couldn't why I didn't like have a more lasting relationship. Well, you know, because of these things. So it was like time for me to make a change, you know? So how old were you when you started therapy? I've been in therapy. There's been different therapists, but I've had the same therapist essentially since college. Okay. He's like my Robin Williams and Goodwill hunting. Like I fucking love this man to death, you know? And you know, we break all the rules at this point because it's just been such a long relationship. Yeah. And he's like more like an old wise uncle. Right. You know, to me at this point. Um, but I've been in, you know, I've been with him on and off for many years, 15, 14 years or something, or like, I don't know. Um, yeah. So he is vital to like so much of my kind of like quest to be a more self-actualized human being, more self-actualized man in this world. And um, yeah. And now me and my girlfriend, Tina, we are in couples therapy now. With him? No, 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 no. Oh, good. Because I always feel like that would be, I mean, some people do it. And my my therapist says he does it, but I would feel like my boyfriend would be like, Oh hell no, we're not going to him because like I feel yeah. like they'd be on your side. You know what I mean? Like they yeah, your yeah. therapist has known you 15 years, right? Like yeah. my therapist here has known me almost like eight years. Yeah, I just feel like it's just not yeah. fair. I feel like I it's think better. That sort of thing can happen as a temporary thing where like say you were having issues, for instance, in your relationship and you were both wanting to be active about obviously getting your own therapist is important, but like if Say, say my partner wanted to come with me to my mm-hmm. therapist so that he could potentially talk to both of us and explain maybe how certain, because listen, and so much of this is in my book, you know, like, yeah, like kind of explain partners, why you are the way you are. or like, Our partners have direct access to our triggers and our traumas and all these things. And so sometimes 
it's it's hard to understand our attachment styles, you know? And so right. like, maybe your therapist could explain to your partner why certain things happen the way they do. And it just gives them more insight. But I think on a That's whole, a point. it's important to have your own. And I think all couples should have a couple therapist together, especially if things are good. Yeah, like don't, don't wait until you have a, like waiting until you have a cavity to go to the dentist. Like, like yeah, so, yeah, exactly. It's, it's incredible. I agree. I'm such a huge advocate. And I know before I go into all these other questions, I just want to say how awesome it is and admirable that you are always paying for people's therapy on social. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I do. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not paying for that. All these people's therapy. But but I I mean, I think it's pretty cool where you're, well, you'll pay for like three months of, and I, I don't know if it's an app therapist or what, but you know, it's true. Like you mentioned it earlier, a lot of the therapy school, everything like it does cost money. And um, it's nice that there are other options. Now there's group therapy sessions. There's the app sesh that I had those girls on here. They're great. And that there's other options now for people that, you know, can't afford like someone that's $300 an hour or whatever it is, you know, because therapy does get really expensive. Yeah. And there's an online therapy that is significantly much cheaper than in-person therapy. And there's, yeah, there's more options now. Um, but it's still a huge privilege and, you know, but it's so important. So yeah, just try to advocate for it and maybe it encourages other people to consider, you know, buying someone's therapy or someone else that tells them when to go to the therapy or whatever, you know? Yeah. Well, also I think too, you being, this is one of my questions, but it seems like it's lending it to itself. You being like an alpha male masculine man that's talking about his feelings, mm-hmm. which is major. And it's crazy that we're even saying that's major in 2023. Yeah. But do you feel then pressure that you like, oh, I have to do this because this is what they're expecting. Mm. You ever feel like that? My audience or something like on Instagram well, or something? Not even, no, 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 not Instagram where, you know, I think it's, I think it was one of the reviews someone was saying, maybe it was Lena Dunham or someone was like, I never even knew men could have feelings like this or straight men could, you know, speak this way mm. or really, you know, uh, maybe it's not even speak so much of the way or express it in a way that is translating to people. And that's what I meant earlier when your art is really translating, people are really understanding it because people can make something and no one really can get it. But yeah, I think yeah, you have yeah. a way of really letting people digest it. So I was wondering if that can influence maybe what, in a good way of what you do or what you say, or, you, or it's not even on your mind. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's not on my mind. Yeah. Because it's just so much a part of like, who I am and what I'm trying to do as an artist. I really believe that art is like everything we do is political. All all art is political in one way or the other. And I don't mean politics in the sense of like, what's the true definition of the meaning behind the Soviet union or something like that. (laughs) I mean like political in the sense that it affects people like, and no matter what you do, you're in the business of consequence, especially creatively. And if you're not thinking about how, your art may either inspire or offend someone. And when I say offend someone, I don't mean like, oh, I'm just doing something that you just are, you know, uh, sensitive about. I mean, like actually like doing something that would potentially be considered racist, homophobic, transphobic, misogynist, whatever. Like when I talk about offending, I'm talking about a marginalized community or some sense. 
And so when you're doing something on grand scale, like if you're not thinking about how your art is communicating to people that I think you're doing a, a grave disservice, you know? And so, um, and so when I think about like talking about my own life or talking about my relationships or my heartbreak or my love or whatever it is in that sense, I don't really feel that's just part of like, like what I need to do. I have to get it out, you know? And so I find a lot of joy in that. And I found a lot of joy in connecting to people because we all have shared, you know, experiences in the, in these, in these kind of ways. Uh, I never do. I really feel like, Oh, there's a pressure in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I do, feel, but I, but I feel a responsibility to always come correct with whatever I'm doing, you know, and to consider, you know, anything that I'm doing commercially that how it might be perceived, you know, I think that's important. I, I think, and that's what I mean by like all art is political in the sense of like everything can, can, can kind of like connects to other people, you know? So where, where do you fall in between all that, you know? And did you have a male role model like that growing up or was there a mentor oh. you had that? No, I had I didn't have a father growing up. Um, I had a stepfather who was not like that at all. You know, I grew up in a community where like, you know, we, I learned these postures and behaviors and attitudes that a lot of, you know, boys learn in these communities. My, my fathers were like rap rock stars and they called women hoes and bitches. And so did I, and you know what I mean? And so it took a long time, you know, to like unlearn these, these things I learned, you know, and to challenge myself look in the mirror and think about what, you know, and, and I think a lot of that came from, um, so I grew up in an all black community. And so in I, Cleveland, very, just for people that Cleveland, Cleveland, Ohio, yeah, in Cleveland, Ohio until I was like 13. And so, but seeing how, like having, just having that little point of like world reference to start my life off with, since, you know, and then moving to like more predominantly white neighborhood and being like, oh, things are different or people talk differently about these things. So I had that. I was very privileged to be able to kind of see that. So then it only made sense that like, oh, why am I being like this with about women? Like the same stuff applies from race to gender to to yes. sexuality. Like, so, so, oh, Cause you see that a lot from like world leaders where they, they can understand race, but then they can't understand gender. Like you're not understanding the intersectionality of it all, the whole thing. Right. So well, many people don't, so, I think what that's what you're saying. Yeah. Many people want to just separate it. Right. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know, like, so I was able to kind of like, and through therapy and through, you know, my own relationships, you know, I start to kind of really question and go deeper with these right. kind of things. And you uh, realize like, this isn't what, how I want to live my life. No, not at all, you know, right. and to really go deeper. And, and I think you're, if you're like to always be in a state of kind of curiosity and questioning and always be in a state of with being wrong, being okay with being wrong and being okay with correcting yourself and right. being okay with lear- like, you know, redirecting your knowledge. And why do you think, um, from what you were saying earlier, because I know I, I used to date a man like that. Women um, that sort of, you know, that put, not even sort of, that put women in this category of, you know, arm candy, cheaters, like she's just my bitch, she's whatever. Why, why do you think, of course, we don't want to just make blanket statements, but why do you think a majority of men or men do that? 
Well, I mean, how could they not in a lot of ways? This whole world is obviously patriarchal and capitalist, and they're all go hand in hand together. And so it's like asking like why the why water is wet like everybody right. like you're just taught that it just penetrates you at such a young age mm-hmm. all the media you consume is is the same way mm-hmm. you know it's the same way why we're all racist in some realm even if you're not actively not doing things right. that you would you know we all part- participate in white supremacy we all participate in capitalism we all participate in the patriarchy and so you know, it's just kind of what it is. Um, right. uh, and unfortunately, most men, I think most cishet men, you know, don't, aren't interested in confronting these things, you know, yes. and same way why there's still stigma about therapy in 2023, you know, or yeah. what it means to heal or be vulnerable, why you can be, you know, uh, a man and, you know, identify as masculine and also cry and also ask for help yeah. and also go to therapy. Like yeah. both things coexist, but we still live in this world where it's like this dichotomy of like, well, you can, if you're this, you're, you're a sissy. And if you're this, then you, yeah. we don't show feelings or like, but both can be true. Both can so exist. It's can like be- when, I don't know if you saw the bills game where that, you know, the guy, yeah. his heart stuff. And all the players like have their shirts up, they're crying, like no one wants to show yeah. that they're crying. And even me, by the way, even me, I was like, oh, I hate when they cry. Like, even I'm saying that, like, like yeah, you're saying, yeah, I'm yeah, part yeah. of it. Like, I, like, I'm like, oh, I hate when a football player cries. But there was one, <laughs> I know it's like so silly. Are you a but football fan? I am a football fan, but I just, and the sport is so um, brutal, but it it will. I don't think it'll ever go away. But so I I feel also like I know way too much about the sport, and so when I see something like that happen, I'm like, but yeah. I just saw here's all these men, and you know some of them are on their knees praying. One guy has his shirt yeah. over his, and they don't want to show that their emotion. And even the newscaster is like, whoop, everyone is in tears. You know, it's just like this whole thing of what you're saying. Like, how can you not be? And then you look at that situation, right? Like one of the most alpha male like you know like balls to the wall sports where that's what you're taught Mm -hmm. exactly that's what you see so it's wild it is it is and i don't know there's no you know there's i don't know if there's an answer to it any of it you know i just can only do what i do in the face of all of it and continue to kind of like work and myself and maybe I'm, you know, and maybe that is an inspiration to some people. That's cool. You know, um, I mean, I want to be, of course, in that sense, you know, I want more men to, you know, go to therapy and talk about these things and unpack, you know, this shit, um, and find honesty and compassion in the face of it all, you know? So, right. So you talked about Marie Andrews book, Am I there yet? Mm-hmm. Having a huge influence on your writing and Leanne Sharpton, and then obviously Keith Haring, which I see like right away, obviously, whenever I look at your work. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what in each of those people you really found taught you the most or or inspired you the most? You know, I mean, obviously there's poets and things that you've said, but I feel you'll be able to put it in better words. Well, I mean, well, Mari Andrews is a good friend of mine. Um, yes, and I saw that she wrote such a nice review of your yeah, book. Too, so I was like, yeah. okay, I don't know if that's still someone you, now that you know her, I don't know. 
No, no. Well, she 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 continues to be a huge source of inspiration for me. I'm so thankful for just her as an artist, you know, like, and we both, I think, I think I inspire her in a lot of ways. You know, she's told me like so much of like some of my earlier projects um, really inspire her to take the leap with her first book and all the things she was doing on Instagram back then. And we continue to inspire each other. We're doing a, you know, for this book, we're doing a book event in DC together. Awesome. Okay. I'm very excited about February 7th, I believe, but that she, you know, she's just incredible the way she can like, um, direct immediate way, like connect to you, you know, in such a simple way. Um, I talk a lot in my book about bell hooks, author and poet activist. Um, you know, she says this thing where like, most of us prefer to like, I don't know, like have a partner than to to not have a partner than to have a partner like that is lacking. Cause like what becomes apparent is like, I don't know, you're more so much of, we just become interested in like having a partner than in knowing love. So we find like partners that are like not good for us. We're finding partners that are lacking in all the things we want, but we rather have that than not be, than, than to be alone. But but then we don't really know what love is in so many ways. Right. Um, and all about love is incredible in that way. So that hits me in a lot of ways with my my attachment style. Right. You know, finding like like you know because I I have this attachment style like my therapist describes it as like abandonment depression. It's like where I feel like my brain trick like gaslights me into thinking like well you know if I do this then she's gonna be upset with me or she's going to leave me if I don't like show up in these certain ways, you know, and I, I, I feel like I must have that too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 I don't know. Just kind of noticing that and growing with that, um, really speaks to me, but I don't, I don't know. I think I went off. No, no, that's okay. We'll go with Keith Haring. Can you talk a little bit about like when you first saw his work? Well, Keith Haring is from day one, like from since college, like his work and also his kind of the activism around his mm-hmm. work, and his New York City-ness to it all yes. has always really inspired me, you know, like he's the godfather with all like, when we think about like, just his work around like the, the things he were he was doing in the street in the 80s. Especially the, the AIDS way- epidemic, everything he did. Yeah, yeah, of course. And like, all of that stuff really made me think like, especially at a young age, like, oh, there's more to this. Like your art can really be powerful in the sense where it can like connect to communities and, and talk about difficult things um, and still be art. Um, And so that always really inspired me to kind of, to do that. And obviously that's different than like the kind of like writing that I do, but all of it kind of like, I think, I was reading one of the interviews one of your people sent and you, this literally, I was like, oh my gosh. And I started crying. (laughs) You were talking about like having, this was the quote, having your work criticized for decades has Mm. a lasting effect on our psyche. And I was like, because I feel like no one understands that, but artists, you know, for years I was acting and auditioning and it was during the pandemic, I realized, why am I doing this? Mm. I don't want to do this. And it really hit me where people would always ask, how can you go in there and you do this, right? And and some people are on their phone. Some people are, 
and you're giving so much to get nothing. And I'd be like, oh, it doesn't affect, it's fine. And then you realize, no, that has had a huge effect on you. And, yeah. and you were going on to say that it's with creative people that they yeah. normally this is happening to because they go towards the arts. How do you get those voices out? Mm. Like, what is your advice to an artist? I know <laughs> it's not, it's a hard question, but I know it's a hard I question. I was I don't literally know. like, oh my God, I'm going to start smoking again today. <laughs> I was just <laughs> <laughs> oh no, don't do that. No, no, no. Um, yeah, it's like, how can it not, right? Like, it just plays into like so much. And like, it's no wonder that like so many highly creative people struggle with mental health issues mm-hmm. and depression and all this stuff, you know? And I'm not saying that like that's the only reason. Of course. But not play on into your psyche, you know? When you're constantly reevaluating your craft and doubting yourself or looking for these highs and finding these lows and all, it's like such a uh, roller coaster that I think a lot of professions don't have to deal with in that sense, you know, and you always constantly have to remake the wheel. Like you're not just like following suit with whatever thing you're doing. Every time you're asked to do a different assignment as a creative person, you basically have to start from like ground zero again, you know, and like, and then you have to like, and it's in front of people. It's always an act in front of people. And there's always a, you know, with that comes criticism and that's such a hard thing to like comprehend. I think where we just don't understand, we can't even begin to understand like how that might penetrate us. And so, yeah, it's just, it's something that stays with me because I feel that a lot, especially when I, you know, even on ourselves, like not even about criticism, but like when I finish a project that I've been working on for a long time, like I go through like Postpartum depression. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. yeah. And there's a deep sadness and a loss. Yeah. And I feel that a lot. You know, I feel like I have to go through that again. And it's no fun, but it's so much a part of being human and being creative. And, you know, and I think if you can tap into that rawness, um, there is something kind of beautiful about it. And I think that that propels so much of what I do and so many people, you know. Right. Yeah. What's so. your what's your favorite part of I mean if you can even say I don't know cuz it's not out yet of the of the book. I mean I love hmm. the title so much. There's so many different parts. I love all the drawings. It's like it's so yeah. made for someone with like ADHD cuz I'm like there's colors in this. There's two parts of this book. The first half is all hunky dory about like what it means very eat pray love bullshit like going to Paris and like yeah. finding myself and showing because I it was really off the heels of a year of depression that I had. And so it was about finally doing something for myself. Mm-hmm. And part of that was learning French and wanting to like do my own sort of like, um, you know, study abroad yeah. that I never did in college because I have money. So it was like to go to Paris and do this and then like fall your in European love. trip. Yeah. 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 And like falling in love and, and there and like the whole journey. And then the second part is like the whole grieving process from, you know, and like of heartbreak and like shock to depression to hope, you know, like the whole, all the steps. And so in a lot of ways, the second part is much more profound for me because it really gets taught, talks about all these things we're talking about and how I'm dealing with the breakup and how I'm still falling into the same patterns that I always do post breakup about, you know, and these attachment issues I have and, you know, and then 
finally like kind of confronting childhood traumas and healing through that in therapy and, you know, all that stuff, medication, whatever. And it really talks about all these things. Um, so in a lot of ways, it's much more profound in that way, but there's so many. I well, know, I was, I, I was happy to learn. I had no idea that you can't freeze any bread in France or in Paris. Yeah, well, you can't buy bread that's not right. But bread. no, that you said there has to be just for the four ingredients, right? Like I, like yes, regardless of all that, I was like, wow, I why didn't <laughs> I know this? Like I go to France all the time. Yeah, well, anytime you go to any sort of like bakery, boulangerie, like it's all it's all it has to be fresh. Yeah, like it's legally required. So now, can you speak it. French now fluently? Okay, I don't even know what that means. It's <laughs> what? I'm like, come see, come see. Come see, come see. So when you mentioned medicine, are you, if you're comfortable with it, because I think it's important for people to hear yeah. if you're not, are you currently taking anything for depression? No, right, right now I'm not. So okay. basically I have a little bit of a, um, maybe a um, non-traditional journey with antidepressants i've taken mm -hmm. it several times but i've only done it for short stints okay so and that's been you know i don't advise anyone to do that it's just what me and my therapist have discovered works mm -hmm. um and everyone's different exactly and so for me it's about getting over a hump mm -hmm. um so they've all been roughly between like four and six months i take it okay um, so it's very much like you know kind of getting on it, kind of starting slow and getting on it, being on it. And then the last month or month and a half, like kind of weaning off of it. Right. Um, and that has worked tremendously great. for me times I've done it. Um, so right now I'm, I'm not on, I haven't been on, um, any medication maybe in a year, about just about a year now. So, but it has helped you get over certain. Oh, sticky yeah. Times. And, I've, and I've always taken Zoloft. Yes. Yes. And I cannot be on, not on Zoloft. You don't. Are you is that what you take? Well, I take a lot of medicine, but I when okay. I've when I've when I've gone off Zoloft, it's it's sort of like I don't realize how great it is until I'm back on it, and then I'm like, wow, I was so depressed. Like I oh, cannot wow. not be on Zoloft. Like it really or Wellbutrin. That's what we found. Like it really is just like a light goes on in me. I mean, I'm very fortunate that that is so helpful, but. But for some people, but for some people, you know, oh my gosh. Well, I was on Zoloft for, and Wellbutrin for like 15 years. Mm -hmm. And then I went off them for a few years and everything just started to, and I didn't really realize it. Like I was I, on other medicine. Again, this was all under a psychiatrist, but I just yeah. thought I need to try something. But I think I was really depressed over a breakup and just mm -hmm. trying to like fix my medicine instead of fixing what was wrong right yeah, inside yeah, yeah, me yeah. emotionally. But then when I went back on it, I thought, wow, you know, like it's kind of, it's, I always describe depression as sort of like gaining weight where it's not like what you notice, you know, oh, I'm gaining weight. It's like you wake up three months, you're like, how did I put 10 pounds on or how, you know what I mean? It's like, to me, that's how it is where it's like, wow, I haven't left the house in a month or I haven't exercised mm -hmm. or I haven't you know, how done long, this. How long have you been on it now since the second time? Like since you so yeah. went back on it? Um, I mean, definitely since the pandemic. So maybe three, almost three years. Yeah. But it I takes, know. you know, I mean, yeah. I'm glad to hear that your doctor or whatever you, but you're always on Zoloft or no. Yeah. I, I always just took that. 
Yeah, it worked. So is that something, the one that you went on and off or no, you you always stay on it? No, I've all, oh no, no, no. That was the one I did on and off. I'm not on it. Yes. And I know that that can be very helpful for people. Like I know a girlfriend of mine did that after her divorce mm. and her doctor was like, okay, let's, and it yeah. was the same thing. Zoloft? Uh, yeah. 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 Where mm-hmm. I do think you have to be on it a few months for it to actually work, but it, but it doesn't, you know what my goddaughter, and she doesn't mind me saying this because she's always calling me about her SSRIs. <laughs> she, you know, it didn't work for her. Like some people it just, and she was on it for like two years. So it's yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. it's okay. Wow. It's, yeah. No, I definitely felt it. Um, I mean, again, I would take it for like, I don't know, six months, like five, six months or something. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like it, it just really like, opened up so much for me yeah for me so much of it is uh, a, a kind of compulsive like mm-hmm. thought it helps with OCD very much and, yeah and so that it stops that so it's wow. able for me it's able like I don't you know so much of like what drives my anxiety my depression at times is like especially like with the breakup where I just fixate over something yeah the hamster wheel it just drives me and I cannot Stop it. Mm-hmm. Can't do anything. And so this would just like, even if I was still, it's not that it would just stop the thoughts, but I don't like, they're I don't less, just them. I always say they're less sticky. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you don't, because people are always like, well, you don't seem depressed. You don't, it just means that the thoughts are there, but they, they don't like get stuck. Where you're yeah, like, yeah. Oh, what am I going to do? I can't, you know, and you get in this sort of like wheel. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's, and you didn't really have any bad side effects because I know some people. Oh, can. yeah, that's good. I have the never thing I was, really nothing. No, people are always like, I, I know some men experience like sexual side effects with Zoloft. And I yeah, I never thought that. No, I've known many, most people, it's like one of the ones, maybe bruising more easily for me, but yeah. Oh, interesting. The only thing I had was like, Okay, so we always end with five questions. All right, let's do it. Five rapid questions. And then you have to give us all your handles and everything. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do for a mental break? I really, for me, I need seclusion. Like I like to, like I'm a cancer, sun, scorpio, moon. I like when I really need, like, it's really about like just decompressing, like literally don't leave the house for a whole weekend and order takeout and just, you know, watch TV, read books, like just kind of write poetry, like just come back to myself, not have anything on the schedule. Like literally can't even be a brunch. Like anything will feel like just, and that is like pure joy for like, because it really just, I need that. At time. And I need that right now. Like that's what I'm doing this weekend. <laughs> when is the last time you cried? Maybe um, three, four weeks ago. Okay. What are you currently reading? I am currently reading too many books. <laughs> so many people are, and you're just like not finishing anything. Um, I am reading uh, Tony Morrison, Sula. I am reading um, uh, the book by the creator of the Rolling Stone, Jan Jan Wenner, mm-hmm. Wenner I think. Uh, it's called like a Rolling Stone. Yeah. Uh, I'm not reading, but I just bought this book. It's like an Asseline book. It's one of those big art books. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. About the Carlisle Hotel in New York City, which is one of my favorite places to go. Oh my gosh! About I need to look into that. I, yes, 
Is, there, is that and new? I think it might be new in the last year. Okay. So it's like this nice big book. And I love those big art books. Yeah. Oh, good. Because it's like the history of the Carlisle. It's just incredible. Um, what is the best and worst advice you've been given? Literally just to like lean into my story, you know, and just like not be afraid. You're always going to be afraid, but to like, just to have the courage to really just put your story out there. Someone, my old boss told me, like, he really like encouraged me to like, he said, I told, I see you're doing all these things. You're like, you know, you're writing, you're having a blog. This was back in the day, having a blog, you're doing this, you're doing that. Like you can do anything you want if you, you know, and like, it's the same thing about the artists. You can call yourself anything you want, you know? Um, and just having someone tell you that you have that you have permission to be anything you want. You are an artist. If you want to be an artist and you make things in the world, you are an artist and that's it. Um, and so sometimes just getting that permission. I don't know the worst thing I've ever heard, the advice I've ever been given. I mean, sometimes the worst advice can be the best where it's like, you'll never be an art. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, of course. That, yeah, like, I don't know. I had this friend back in Cleveland before I came here. He said... He said, uh, you're, you're living Kool-Aid dreams. He said, you'll never make it in New York and, uh, <laughs> you should really reconsider going there. Um, yeah, that's so bad advice. That was bad advice. But, you know, I think for a long time, I tried to prove people like that wrong yeah. and it worked for me, but then ultimately that was not, that was very unhealthy for me too. So I had to figure out for myself, like, you know, why I was working and making things yeah sometimes you just make you just do stuff for a lot when you realize 10 years past you've just been doing whatever you're doing in response to something yeah you're and, that yeah. sounds like me too like i'm like oh they think i can't yeah and it's like why do you care like my shrinking yeah. why are you doing that but still yeah. that's that's good to recognize um what instagram account do you find uplifting or is there something on social that you like to go to, or I know sometimes people can get really caught up in the, the doom scroll and all that. So I always like to try to give listeners any good accounts. I mean, there's so many, I don't know if I have like an account that I'm like, I mean, I could just shout out all my friends <laughs> who I think are doing like amazing. I mean, it doesn't stuff. have to be on Instagram. It could just be something that you find that you find uplifting. You know what I mean? It could be. Yeah. Um, what is the, I've been, I've been following these, oh, I wish I could remember their name. These guys, they do like, this isn't really uplifting, but <laughs> these guys, they do these jumps. Like they, they run off top, they run off buildings and then they're like, Oh, I know. They're almost like, like they like jump, they'll like yes. jump on the side of a building and then hit the other side of the building and then like yeah. hit the gate, whatever. And they it's do all so these. Crazy. Like, Where is that? Like, what is that in the United States? It's in London, I think in okay. England. That's totally something uplifting. I mean, it's whatever yeah, you think, like. Yeah. You know the handle or just DM it to me or something. If I'll you DM it to you. I, I don't know. I like following a lot of stuff online that's very like just, I, I love watching like biographies. I love watching mm -hmm. interviews. Mm -hmm. You know, I love clips of interviews with, you know, creative people, actors, directors, you know, that kind of thing. So that kind of stuff I always find like, like, my girlfriend's always like, your TikTok is like so not like mine. Cause my TikTok is just literally like just whatever interview per like yeah. thing. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's like filled with. Well, that's what you like to, to see. 
Well, thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. Thank you to Timothy for joining us. And where can our listeners find you? We need all your handles. Yeah. So um, I am at Timothy Goodman on Instagram. Um, I would say I'm pretty active, always sharing and talking and um, doing my thing. Uh, I am on Twitter at Timothy O. Goodman. Uh, There, I'm not very active anymore. I used to be. Um, I'm on all the other things. You search my name. I'm on TikTok. I'm not very active, but sometimes I try to be. Yeah. Um, And then you can obviously purchase my new book. I always think it's forever. You can pre-order it whenever it's coming out. Pre-order it. You can purchase it. Uh, And um, I have a bunch of links on a website, tgoodman.com slash books. Um, and there's a bunch of links, anything from Amazon, the Barnes and Noble to your favorite indie place. Uh, obviously you can go on any kind of bookseller and search the title or search my name and you will probably find it. And I will also be doing a bunch of events around the book Two in New York city, the week of publication, January 31st and February 2nd in New York city. I'll be in Boston and DC and Los Angeles doing book events in February. All right. Well, that's all, folks. Be sure to subscribe to Ben Better HBU. We can be found on Apple and Spotify and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you for tuning in to Ben Better. How about you? To learn more, please visit benbetterhbu.com and check out our Instagram, bbhbu. Slide into our DMs with your questions and or comments. Also, be sure to subscribe for your weekly prescription. This pharmacy is open 24-7.